0: Hello, and welcome to the Hope Reformed Baptist Church of Long Island's podcast. In this episode, we continue our series in the Epistle to the Hebrews. The sermon was preached by Pastor Richard Jensen on July twenty fifth, 2021 during the morning worship service. The sermon's title is The New Covenant and discusses Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 13. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast to hear future episodes. You can also visit our site, hopereformedli.net, and find us on Facebook and Sermon Audio for more information. Hebrews chapter 8, starting verse 7. Hear now the inspired word of God. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he set a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Let's pray. Father, once again, as we come before you and we are looking into your word, we ask that you'd open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts, that we would see, hear, and understand what you have to say to us. And especially, Father, as we look at this new covenant and, and just how important this is to our salvation. We pray that you would help, help us to understand and apply it to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Do you ever notice how... More often than not, people resist change. Let me give you an example. There's probably only a few people in this room that will remember that cars didn't always have power steering. When they were first introduced, it was actually an option on a car. You could order with or without power steering. And and without power steering, you could feel everything on the road. That wheel would shake back and forth with the marks on the road, even. In fact, back in those days, there was real meaning in make a hard left. I can remember my uncle saying, I will never own a car with power steering. And his thinking was, he says, I want to be able to feel the road. Then one day he had a blowout almost lost control of the wheel in his hands, and his next car had power steering. (laughs) When microwave ovens were first introduced, many people swore they would never have them in their kitchen. Now if one breaks down, you don't know how to make popcorn anymore. In the 1950s, we all watched television with an antenna on the roof. And when the idea came up of cable TV that you had to pay for, people scoffed. People will never pay for television when you can get it for free. <laughs> and now how many hundreds of channels are there with cable bills running into the hundreds of dollars a month? The point is, in general, people are resistant to, to change, even if that changes for the better. And that was a problem with the first century Christian Jews. Christ had definitively brought a new and better covenant, and yet when the author of Hebrews writes to them 30 years later, his concern is they are lapsing back into the old covenant. Uh, The rituals, the ceremonial laws, the types and the symbols were drawing them back into a legalistic form of Christianity. And that is his main purpose in writing this epistle, to warn his fellow Hebrew Christians of the folly of lapsing back into the old system. And that context is important to properly understand what the writer is saying, especially in the next section of this letter. So once again, I want to begin with a short review because I think the context is just so important and, and let me begin again by emphasizing the importance of proper interpretation. That's one of the reasons we're having that hermeneutics class on, on Wednesday. Careless interpretation of these scriptures will lead to serious error. The whole law versus gospel controversy is fostered by mishandling of the text that we're looking at this morning. and And many other errors as well. But on the other side careful interpretation of these texts lead to the truth that will affect your relationship with Christ and how you live every day. Remember, doctrine is important. Doctrine is not given to us in a a vacuum. Doctrine tells us how we to live our lives in a practical sense day in and day out. So what is the essence of this epistle? It is the superiority of Christ. And he begins, if you remember, by showing that Christ is superior to the angels, then he is superior to Moses. And now we're in the middle of the his apologetic that Christ is superior to the Levitical priesthood. He's superior to all the Old Testament high priests because he is an eternal priest after the order of Melchizedek and not a Levitical order that was destined to pass away. And now we see that his priesthood is superior because of the, the new covenant of which he is mediator, is so far superior to the old. His ministry is enacted upon better promises in this covenant. And that's what verse 6 of this 8th chapter of Hebrews tells us, that it is a new, a better covenant, a better ministry. Last week we reviewed what a covenant is from a biblical perspective. And then we examine covenant theology in a a broad overview as a foundation for the text that's before us this morning. And so we come to our text. Look at verse 7 of chapter 8. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. I want you to notice something here. This is a conditional argument. If the first covenant had been without fault, then there would have been no need for another covenant. But we know that there is another, a new covenant, therefore something was wrong with the first. And that's the crux of his argument that we're looking at. And it's, it's undeniable. The, the author's logic throughout this entire epistle is, is absolutely flawless. You know, there's an old saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And that's kind of what he's saying here, just a little bit more eloquent than I said it. God isn't in the business of doing things needlessly. But what was the fault of the Old Covenant? Where did it break down? And these are crucial questions. And does the inadequacy of the Old Covenant invalidate its teaching? The author of Hebrews answers that with an emphatic, no, the Old Testament teaching is still extremely valid. In fact, if you read this epistle, which I would encourage you to, to do this periodically whenever we're doing an exposition of a, of a particular book, we, we get, you get little tidbits each Sunday. It's important to sit down and read through the whole book so that you get the broader context. We don't ever want to lose sight of the whole context. So if you read this epistle, the author consistently quotes the Old Testament as an authoritative source. So anybody who says the Old Testament is not valid for us is certainly not reading the epistle to the Hebrews, where he quotes it as an authoritative source. And in fact, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.15... He says that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. See what Paul's saying there? Paul says the Old Testament scriptures, because that's the only thing Timothy had growing up. Old Old New Testament scriptures hadn't been written yet. He says those Old Testament scriptures contained enough to lead person to salvation in Jesus Christ. So certainly, the relevance of the Old Testament. And Christ certainly regarded the Old Testament scriptures as an authoritative source, since he quotes them to Satan in the wilderness to refute his temptation. What does he do? It is written. It is written. It is written. Peter tells us that the reason we should live holy lives is because there's an Old Testament commandment that you should be holy because I am holy. Oh, isn't that interesting? Peter quotes that in First Peter 1, 15. He says, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your, your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, I want you to stop and think about this for a minute. Peter could have said, You should be holy because Jesus Christ has commanded it. Couldn't he? Did Christ command us to be holy? Of course he did. Peter knew that very well, but he had no trouble years after the resurrection of Christ to quote the Old Testament as an authoritative, binding the conscience of Christians in the New Covenant. So if we follow the example of the apostles, certainly we have to see the continuing relevance of the Old Testament. Now, I'm belaboring this because there are people today standing in pulpits saying, the Old Testament's good for stories, good for examples, but it's not binding on us. Not according to the apostles and not according to Jesus, who said not one jot or tittle would pass away. So the scriptures could not be in error, nor could they be the fault for the failure of the Old Covenant. Is it the essence of the covenant that was faulty? Well, see, here's where we run into problems. Many theologians, especially those of the dispensational bent, say, yes, the covenant itself was faulty. They misunderstand the design and the purpose of the old covenant just as they do the law of God. And this is one reason we spent all that time last week reviewing reviewing covenants. The old covenant was designed to point to Jesus Christ and the better covenant he would bring in his blood. Then what failed? Verse 8 tells us, the writer says, for finding fault with them. The main inadequacy of the old covenant was the people. The design of the old covenant was flawless in that sense. God accomplished his purpose through the old covenant per- perfectly. Perfectly what he proved was that even in a system designed to bring a person to God, if anything is left to the individual, it will fail. If only we could get our Armenian friends to understand that point. It doesn't matter how good your system is, how good your covenant is, if anything is left up to the individual, it is destined to fail. In fact, I used to work with a man who had a favorite expression. He said, you made a mistake, he says, you know, you could mess up a one-man convoy. (laughs) That about sums it up when it comes to our salvation. If anything is left up to us, it will fail. And that's what God showed us and demonstrated so clearly through the Old Covenant. Paul says in Galatians 3, 24, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified By faith. So the primary failure of the old covenant is, firstly, on the part of the people. The author explains that the failure, explains that failure in the next two verses. Let's look at at verses 8 and 9 again. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. can be no question that the main fault is on the part of the people. Yet even though the blame for failing to keep the terms of the covenant is laid upon the people, the author still says the first covenant was not said to be faultless, and a new covenant was necessary. Why is that? Let me quote John Calvin for a moment from his commentary. And he says, Though the crime of violating the covenant was justly imputed to the people who had through their own perfidy departed from God, yet the weakness of the covenant is also pointed out, and listen carefully, because it was not written in their hearts. And that is what we see as we move further along in our study. Verses 8 to 12 of this chapter are a direct quotation from Jeremiah 31, 31 and following. And it's interesting to note that the author to Hebrews quotes these verses and makes no attempt to comment on them. He simply quotes them to prove his point. In verse 8, we see the promise given that a new covenant will be enacted at some future time. The Lord declares that that time is coming. Verse 8, for finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The time had already been predetermined by God, and he did establish this new covenant at just exactly the right time in history. In verse 9, we see the elements of the old covenant and how the Israelites failed to live up to their part in the covenant. Notice the elements. First, there's two parties to the covenant, God and the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And and by the way, there's significance in how he puts those two, uh, two groups of people, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Remember, the nation was divided at the time of Jeremiah. The ten tribes of Israel had not yet returned from exile when this prophecy was given. So God is showing, even offhanded way, that there will be a reunification of all of his people. And remember the elements of the covenant we spoke about last week. The essence of the covenant is our relationship with God. He is our God. We are his people. Don't ever lose sight. That's the essence of the covenant. And that is the promise of God that, that he would establish this new covenant. He would, in fact, take them by the hand. They had to trust God, and that was demonstrated by obedience to the commandments. But they did not remain faithful. In other words, they didn't trust God, and therefore they didn't obey his commandments. Romans 9, verse 31, But Israel pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. And so God turned from the nation of Israel as being his covenant nation. In fact, he likened them to a harlot. In Jeremiah 3, verse 8, he says, And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel I had sent her away, and given her a writ of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. And so why did God send them away? Because they demonstrated that they were not really his covenant people. Remember Romans 9? But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. And we know from our study that the true Israel is all those who believe. But even in the darkest of times, when God was turning his back on Israel, there was always a remnant of true believers. Romans 9:27, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, "Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sands of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved." And again, in Romans 11:5, in the same way, there has also come to be at the, the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. So what's the bottom line here? Why did a new covenant have to be brought in? Because of the sinful nature of the people. The essence of the covenant never changes. It is God's grace, always God's grace, and only God's grace that anyone is ever saved. The change in the covenant is how it is given to his people. Look at verses 10 to 12. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord I will put my laws in their minds, I will write them upon their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. First notice, this new covenant comes by the word of the Lord. It is he who defines the terms and the elements of the covenant. The first thing we see in the description is that there is a written law. God says he will put this law on their minds and write it on their hearts. Those are parallel phrases. Heart and mind are virtually synonymous in, the con- in this context. This description also tells us who are the covenant people. It is no longer reserved for the ethnic Jew, the true Israel is comprised of all those who have God's law written on their heart. It is all those who are born again. It is made up of all tribes and tongues and people. Jesus said in Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen: Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Then we see that familiar phrase again, I will be their God and they will be my people. That phrase, as we have seen, is at the heart of the covenant relationship. And it's repeated over and over again. Exodus six seven, Leviticus twenty six, twelve, Jeremiah seven, twenty three, eleven, four, second Corinthians six, sixteen, and Revelation twenty one three. God is our covenant God, and in this new covenant there is, that is an unbreakable bond. Because in the new covenant God writes the laws on our hearts and not on tablets of stone that can be broken the perfect covenant instituted by a perfect Savior in a perfect way, which guarantees the salvation of all who are truly in this covenant. And in this covenant, God is not just an awesome being in smoke and fire on a mountaintop. He is. He is all that. And the people are not commanded to stay away from the mountain lest they die, but we are commanded to draw near. Hebrews 7, verse 18. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weak, weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And then we see that within the covenant people, there is universal knowledge of God. You know, in the old covenant, ignorance was ignorance of God was rampant. Remember how often do we read that the book of God's law sat on a shelf and gathered dust while the people worshipped other gods, or no God at all. Remember the story of Josiah. They found the book of the law while cleaning out the temple, and he wept because they were ignorant of God's commandments and had stopped observing the feasts of God. And listen to the words of Scripture on this point, Isaiah 1, verse 2. Listen o heavens and hear o earth for the lord speaks sons i have reared and brought up but they have revolted against me an ox knows its owner and a donkey its master's manger but israel does not know my god my people do not understand jeremiah 422 for my people are foolish they do not know me. They are stupid children, and they have no understanding. They are shrewd to do evil, but to do good they do not know. But in the new covenant, things will be different. In verse 11, And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest of them. Within the body of Christ, the covenant community All will know the Lord. Now I have to pause here for a moment. Some people distort this saying, uh, God is saying that we don't need teachers. Nothing could be further from the truth because that would put God's word in contradiction because he clearly states that pastors and teachers are gifts to the church. What he's saying here is that there will be no more ignorance as in the old covenant. If you are a Christian... You must be taught many things. You're, in fact, you're commanded to submit to the eldership of the church. That's, and, and that's why we have Bible studies, and it's one of the functions of preaching. But if you are truly a Christian in the covenant community, something I do not have to teach you is to know the Lord. Because God has changed your heart, and you know the Lord. but this knowledge will be extensive listen to these prophecies concerning the new covenant era isaiah 11:9 they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the lord as the water covers the sea habakkuk 2:14 for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the lord as the waters cover the sea why I'm in this pulpit (laughs) It's because of what the word of God says if I would take my eyes off of this book and put it on the New York Times or start listening to CNN I'd get out of this pulpit and walk away in despair but God's word says the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God so we continue to preach from this pulpit We preach that the knowledge of the Lord will be extensive. Knowledge in Scripture is not a superficial thing. This doesn't mean that many people will just hear about the Lord and have an idea of the Lord, but that many will come to know Him as the waters cover the sea. And who are these people? From the least to the greatest. Do you fit in there somewhere? From the pauper to the nobleman. From the least in society to the great. Doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter the language that you speak. Doesn't matter who your mother and father were. From every tribe and tongue and people. See, and this is the greatest sense. You know, it's it's interesting because in one sense, the message of Christianity is exclusive. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me but through the Father, right? No one goes to the Father but through me. That's what Jesus said. But here we see that this the covenant community is completely inclusive. God is not a respecter of persons. And then we see that this new covenant brings... Complete remission of sins. Verse 12, for I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. The new covenant is a merciful covenant. It's a covenant of grace. In other words, we get something we don't deserve. And that is the complete forgiveness of our sins. He says that he will remember them no more. And remember, when we talk about Scripture, remembering no more is not forgetting. God doesn't forgive and forget. God's promise is never to bring them up against us again. There's a legal declaration. When God forgives your sin, it's forgiven, and he will never hold that against you again. That's what he means when he says he will remember them no more. It is a legal declaration that we are no longer under the condemnation that our sins deserve. They are removed from us as far as the east is from the west. They are buried in the depths of the sea, never to be resurrected again. We come to the last verse in this chapter, verse 13. When he said a new covenant... He has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Just a couple of comments about this verse. First, notice again the term New Covenant is a biblical term. Uh, there's a whole group of people calling themselves New Covenant theologians that have hijacked a good word and turned it into some poor theology. But... This is a biblical term, and we should not shy away from using it just because some misuse it today. Second, how was the covenant made obsolete? By the fulfillment of all of its types and shadows by Jesus Christ. Jesus brought in a new covenant which superseded, not corrected the old one. Therefore, all of the old covenant is necessary for us to study and to learn. The Old Testament scriptures are profitable for doctrine, for correct, conviction, correction, and training in Righteousness. And the inadequacy of the old covenant was found to be in the weakness of the people and that it wasn't written on their hearts. And then I'm going to throw one more little thing in here which you can feel free to object to and make it a point of controversy and discussion over the tables. But I think this verse also tells us when the book of Hebrews was written. And it was written sometime before 70 A.D. because clearly the old covenant ceremonies were still in practice when the author wrote these words. He talks about them in the present tense. And that's an important point for when we study the issues regarding biblical revelation and when new revelation ceased. But that's for another message. Point here this morning is we respond differently to change, don't we? Sometimes we welcome it. Sometimes we resist it. When something proves to be beneficial, we may even accept it if we rejected it at first. Many people swore they would never own a personal computer. Now many of us are computer dependent. My father, when he was alive, was introduced to computers when he was 85 years old. And he became a computer nerd. (laughs) He loved it. I've become extremely reliant on my computer. I couldn't imagine going back to writing my sermons by hand. After all, I had to correct my own grammar. (laughs) And now I can rearrange whole paragraphs and ideas with the click of a mouse. And then it saves them for me on a hard drive so I can pick them up again and see. Well, never mind. (laughs) As we continue in our study in Hebrews we will continue to look at the new covenant. We have just, we've just scratched the surface this morning. There's so much more that we need to look at about the new covenant. But as far as we've seen, this is truly a new and better covenant. It is the covenant of grace. It was enacted when Jesus enacted the, the, the new covenant in his blood. We must be careful that we not fall into the same error as some of the early Hebrew Christians, that we forsake the new covenant and lapse back into the types and shadows. Remember how blessed we are that in this covenant we draw near to God by his invitation. He seeks and saves that which is lost. We are now coming to the part of the service where we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Remember, this is a remembrance of what Christ has done for us in bringing the new covenant in his blood and saving us to the uttermost. If you're here this morning and you've never come to that place, you know that you're still in your sin, I would ask you to consider what has been said. Consider the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ that guarantees the forgiveness of sin and that it would be remembered no more. Repent of your sin. Bow to need to Jesus Christ. Call him Lord, and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, once again, as we bow before you, we thank you for this new covenant in the blood of Christ. We thank you, Father, that you sent him, and his sacrifice completely removes our sin from us. We don't get what we deserve. We get something we don't deserve, and that is forgiveness and a restored relationship with you. Thank you that in this new covenant, all will know you, from the greatest to the least, from every tribe, every tongue, every people. And so, Father, we thank you for this new covenant which you have enacted to save your people from their sin. I pray, Father, for anyone who today who doesn't know you that today would be the day of salvation. Please take away their stony heart. Give them a heart of flesh that they might repent and believe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.